Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Um, Today we're starting a new study through the tiny and often neglected letter of Jude. Uh, So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Jude. Uh, If you don't know where that's at, just go all the way to the back of your Bible, book of Revelation, and then one book in front of that is the the book of Jude. It is a, I say it's a tiny book because Jude is very, very, very short, just a few words, 25 verses, I think, but they pack a punch. Uh, And so what's cool about the smallness or the brevity of this letter is that it means that Jude doesn't waste any space dancing around the issue or mincing words. He gets right to the point. Uh, We say it's an often neglected letter uh, because to be perfectly honest, there's not a lot of studies or commentaries on Jude. I mean, it's, it's difficult to find a lot of reference study material for this book. In fact, when was the last time you heard a verse by verse exposition of the book of Jude? I mean, if you've been a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years, have you ever heard a verse-by-verse exposition of the letter of Jude? I've been uh, following Jesus since 2003, never heard a verse-by-verse exposition of the letter of Jude. Uh, In fact, it's amazing to me as I was kind of prepping for this series, this study, um, it's amazing how many like entire volume series, like 25 volume commentaries um, will often devote just one, two, maybe three pages to this letter, which blows my mind because this is such a mysterious and fascinating book and it has such real life relevant application for us. And so um, we're going to do that. We're going to dive in. We're not going to neglect the letter of Jude. So if you're there with me, I'm giving you a little bit of time. Uh, Let's read all 25 verses of the letter of Jude. Begins this way. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you are, must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, seek to undertake a study of this small but mighty book, I pray that you would come and open our eyes and open our ears and teach us, speak to us, Lord. And uh, Lord, may we be more like Jesus Christ because of our time in this little letter. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's intense, right? I mean, that is small, but that is intense. There is so much happening in these 25 verses. Now, uh, Martin Luther once said that every Christian ought to read the Bible from cover to cover every year. Um, I don't know if that's a mandate, but I think it's probably a good idea, reading it from cover to cover. He says, get the whole scope of the Bible, understand how, how the story flows, one story told from Genesis to Revelation. But he also compared the Bible to a forest, and he said that the Bible doesn't really yield its richest rewards until you see not only the forest, but you stop and examine each tree and each branch and finally, each leaf. R.C. Sproul said, quote, Every little leaf of sacred scripture must be turned over and studied in order to see the intricate truths that are revealed in God's word. And so today, what I want to do is I want to just walk through the outline of this book. Um, we're going to take the 30,000 foot view. We're going to look at the forest. Okay? And in the following weeks, what we'll begin to do is look at each branch and turn over every leaf. Cool? So today, let's walk through. It's going to be less of a 
um, less of a teaching and more of like kind of setting the, the tone, setting the frame, the outline for where we're going to go in the next few weeks. So let's just cover some of the basics, okay? Who's the author of this letter of Jude? Well, the author is Jude. If you guessed Jude, you got it right. Um, and you probably guessed that because he identifies himself in verse 1. Now we're going to talk about him more in detail and who this person was next week. We're going to kind of break that down a little bit and how he identifies himself. Super powerful. When was this letter written? Well, let me give you a couple things about the date. This was written uh, sometime between AD 65 and AD 80. Uh, and here's an interesting fact about it. Here's why we kind of date it this way. Because much of the letter of Jude has parallels in 2 Peter. So when you read 2 Peter and you read Jude together, there are parallels. There are things happening like just straight across the board. Things that you're reading in Jude are also in 2 Peter. So there's a clear, seems to be a clear interdependence between the two books. Okay? Now either Peter drew from Jude as the Holy Spirit led him to write his letter, or Jude drew from Peter, or both drew from an unknown third document. Now, if Jude was written before 2 Peter, I know this seems confusing, but this is why I want to get to the day. If Jude was written before 2 Peter, then it may have been written as early as AD 65. If Jude was written after 2 Peter, as many scholars assume, it may have been written as late as AD 80. So that's why we have that range of date for this, this letter. Sometime between AD 65 in AD 80. So Jude is writing between that time frame to who? Uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more again next week, but he's writing to an unknown community of Christians. We know they're believers from some of the way that he identifies them, uh, but we're not exactly sure who they were. Whereas like with Paul's letters, he would say to the church in Corinth. We know that he's writing to the believers that were meeting in churches in the city of Corinth. Um, where he would say to the church in Rome. We knew he was writing to believers that were meeting in churches in Rome. This letter does not directly identify to whom and where exactly Jude is writing, but we know he's writing to believers. So it's an unknown community of Christians. What's nice about that is that it, it, it keeps it open. It becomes then what we would call like a general letter. And now obviously all of scripture is for all of the church. But there's something really kind of cool about a, a, a not specifically identifying exactly who he's writing to because then it's easier for us to go, oh, this is for us. Sometimes when we say, oh, he's writing to the church in Rome, we go, oh, that's just for the Romans at that time. When no, it's really for us as well. But with something like this, it's just a general letter to a community of Christians. It's, it's much easier to make that direct application to our own lives, okay? And so Jude is writing between AD 65 and AD 80 to an unknown community of Christians. And what, if anything, is the theme of this letter? What is, the, what is the theme of this letter? And I would say the theme of his letter, the point and purpose of this letter, would be contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. We'll break that down more in the following weeks. But here's what I want to do real quick. And then we're actually just going to... We're going to walk through an outline. So what's the outline of this letter? Um, and then I'm going to give you kind of five reasons why I think studying this book is important. And then we're going to wrap up for the day. Cool, cool? So here's the outline. Okay, this is where we're going in the next few weeks. Uh, and yeah, it's 25 verses. I know we've done, uh, you know, 30-something verse psalms in one week. <laughs> uh, we're not going to cover all 25 verses today. We're not going to do one 
one verse a week, though we're not going to probably do much better than that. We'll get through one or two verses uh, a week. Sometimes we'll take larger chunks, but there's so much going on in these verses that we've got to pause and breathe and really turn over every leaf to yield its kind of the fullest rewards. Um, so let's do this. There's kind of basically six divisions, six main sections that I can see in this letter. There's a hundred ways to outline this letter, but here's how I've outlined it. Uh, section one is going to be an introduction. So verses one and two, we see that, that Jude is going to just introduce himself, who he's writing to, and he's going to give an opening kind of benediction. A benediction is just like a, a, a blessing that he speaks over people. So you know at the end of our service, uh, always where we where we give a benediction, uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26, where we say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's right out of the, the book of Numbers, but it's a benediction. It's speaking a blessing over people. And he does that. Jude uh, identifies himself in verse 1, identifies who he's writing to, at least in a general sense. And then in verse 2, he speaks a, just an opening blessing, an opening benediction. And that kind of constitutes the introduction of this letter. The second section of this book goes into what I believe is the purpose of this letter. So that's there in your notes too. The purpose of this letter is, I believe, laid out for us in verses 3 and 4. And I think it's two main purposes. A, he's writing, why? To encourage believers to contend for the faith. And I think that's a couple things. One, to, to stand in faith, to contend for their own faith, to build up their own faith. We're going to see that later on. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So strengthen your own faith. But also to contend or to spar or to make war, to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints against the false teaching that comes into the church. And so he's encouraging them, hey, contend. There's going to be some, some, some battle here. There's going to be some striving, and I want you to contend for the faith, and I want you to contend not just for your faith, but for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so he writes, A, to encourage believers to contend for the faith, and B, to condemn and warn against false teachers who had infiltrated the church. He actually says, and we're going to break this down in a few weeks, but he actually says, I actually wanted to write to you about something else, but I felt it was necessary he says, I was compressed. I, was, I felt this urgency, this sense of what happened was the Holy Spirit gets all over Jude and says, no, here's what we need to address. And so if all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that, this, that Jude is breathed out by God, as we just learned in the last three weeks, if this letter is breathed out by God, and it is, what happened is Jude sat down, he says, look at, look at verse 3. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he just wanted to write a, a little a letter about the salvation that they have in common, just encouraging them in our common salvation. He says, though I was very eager to write to you about that, I found it necessary. And the language there is I was absolutely felt pressure and compressed and it was just a sense of urgency to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then why? Verse four, because for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He says certain people have infiltrated the church and they're bringing corrupt teaching. 
So the Holy Spirit is compressed upon me to write to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so his purpose in writing is to encourage believers to contend for the faith and to condemn and warn against false teachers who had infiltrated the church. Now, how is he going to do that? How is he going to condemn those false teachers? How is he going to do that? Well, he does it by then launching into seven Old Testament examples of those who have abandoned their faith or rebelled against God. And he compares these false teachers to these seven Old Testament examples. Okay? And so the bulk of the letter is actually going to take us through these examples and descriptions of those who departed from the faith and will exhort us to stand firm in the faith. He says certain teachers have crept in, they've abandoned the faith, and they're like these seven Old Testament examples of people who abandoned the faith and and perverted the gospel and who rebelled against God. And their judgment will be like the judgment of these people in the Old Testament. And so he spends a bulk of his letter fleshing out these Old Testament examples. And so that's the third section of this outline is seven Old Testament examples of judgment on those who abandoned the faith. And I I wrote them out there for you. But he's going to walk us through the nation of Israel itself. He's like, remember. I mean, remember. He says, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, this is the nation of Israel, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He says, so he saved them out of Israel. And then later, yet, they were destroyed because they abandoned belief. They abandoned the faith. And they experienced a judgment. He's going to talk about, look at that second example, Old Testament example of judgments. He's going to talk about some weird stuff with fallen angels and stuff that the angels got into. They left their, their role and their, their position and, and they got into some strange dealings. And we're going to, that's going to take us back into the book of Genesis. And so we're going to have to flesh out what's going on there. Some crazy kind of interesting, mysterious, dark, ugly story in the book of Genesis, but he's going to say, hey, it's like these fallen angels who didn't stay in the faith, who didn't stay where they were supposed to be, didn't honor God the way they were supposed to, but they fell from their position. They fell from their faith and they did and rebelled against God in ways that they shouldn't have. Then he's going to give us the third example of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, we, Sodom and Gomorrah is a famous saying now. We're like, oh, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know? Uh, and there's an intense judgment in the Old Testament on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their re- rejection of God and their rebellion against him and their lack of faith and the ways that they sinned against God. And he says, these people who have crept in and are destroying your faith, their, their judgment's going to be like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's intense. It's not a small thing. And then he's going to talk about the fourth example there. I, I put Satan and Michael uh, regarding Moses. That's what that RE means, okay? So here's an interesting little side fact about it. This is a weird story that, that Jude is going to, going to talk about, about how the archangel Michael and Satan disputed, of all things, over the body of Moses. It's a weird story. And actually... He's going to kind of take from a book that's not in the scriptures, not in our canon of scripture. Uh, There's a book called the book of Enoch. Actually, there's a few of them. And it's what we would call an apocryphal book. It's outside of the canon of the New Testament. But but Jude's readers were very familiar with this letter. And and Jude's going to say, hey, like this story, this is the judgment that they're going to experience. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that story and how... 
sometimes uh, as he's quoting from, from extra biblical kind of sources, a letter of Enoch and a letter called The Assumption of Moses, which is also an apocryphal book. So, so Jude kind of quotes these books that are outside of the Bible. We need to understand some of the context there. So we're going to dive into that when he gets to that example. The fifth example he gives is Cain. Many of you may not understand the story of Cain, but in Genesis, Cain was the first human who committed murder, killed his brother, killed Abel. And we read that right in Genesis. And so he's going to say these, these people are like Cain, bringing, introducing destructive heresies and false teachings. It's like killing people's faith. It's killing their spiritual. It's, you're like Cain when you do that. And your judgment will be like that of Cain, is what he says. And then he talks about a guy named Balaam. Uh, and there's a whole interesting story there that we're going to unpack, right? Uh, this the Old Testament example of a guy named Balaam. And then he talks about a guy named Korah. In fact, Cain, Balaam, and Korah are all kind of cemented in the same verse. Uh, I believe it's verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. And so Cain, the murderer, and Balaam, who, who abandoned himself for the sake of gain, and, and Korah, who rebelled against God and godly leadership. So he's going to flesh out in the bulk of this letter these seven Old Testament examples. And he's going to say, those who have infiltrated the church, who are among us, who are teaching these false things, are like these seven Old Testament examples, and their judgment will be like that of these seven Old Testament examples. And so that's a heavy thing that he's doing here. Now, he just flips that off like we have that knowledge, you know? And so that's why we're going to dive into that, okay? The fourth section of this letter is going to deal with the judgment of these false teachers, judgment of false teachers. That's verses 12 through 16. And there's two real sections in, in, that, in that fourth part of this letter. Okay, It's going to first talk about the character. He's going to give a character description of these false teachers. Actually, let me, let me look at this. He starts in verse 12. I don't know if you caught this second, but it's pretty intense. Some intense metaphors and imagery that he uses to describe the character of these false teachers. He says they're like hidden reefs. They, they feast with you without fear. They're like shepherds who feed themselves. They're like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. That's a powerful image to describe this, the character of these and judgment of these false teachers. He says they're wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Intense metaphors. He says they're wandering stars for whom, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I mean, that's intense. You go, that's poetic. Yeah, it's poetic and intense. So if he, he's describing the character. What are they like? What are they like? He goes on, you know. They follow their own. They're, 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 they cause divisions. They're worldly people. They're devoid of the spirit. They're grumblers. Verse 16. They're grumblers. They're malcontents, not content with anything. They're following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. He's, he's fleshing out the character of these false teachers. And then he talks about the judgment that they're going to experience. Fifth section of this letter in our outline. There is a call for us to persevere call for believers to persevere. That's verses 17 through 23. 
And he's going he's to call us to persevere. He's going to call the church to persevere in the faith by really giving three kind of admonitions. A, he's going to say, remember the predictions that were made. None of this should shock you. Remember, this was prophesied, that what you're experiencing was predicted. And so it shouldn't come as a shock to you. And then he's going to encourage them that B, keep the faith. Build up your faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Strengthen your faith. Don't, don't be like these who abandon the faith or encourage others to abandon the faith with false teaching, but strengthen yourself. Build yourself up in faith. And then he's, C, going to tell them to rescue the deceived. Rescue the deceived. Look at this. Verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. So this false teaching has infiltrated the church and some are starting to have doubts about the things that the that they were taught about the things that the scripture says about the faith. And they're starting to doubt because this false teaching is creating confusion. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy, but with fear. That is, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He says, rescue those who you can from this destruction, from this false teaching, but do so carefully so that you don't get stained, so that you don't get burned. So that you don't fall away. So he's rescue the deceived. Rescue those who are being led away into deception. And then the book's going to close in verses 24 and 25, part 6, with what would be called a doxology. And I, I gave you a little description there. The word doxology is just a fancy word that, that means speaking the glory of God. It comes from uh, two words. Doxa, which means glory or splendor or grandeur. And the word logos, which means word or speaking. So it just means speaking the glory of God. A doxology is just an expression of praise. It's an expression of glory to God. He's going to wrap this book up with this amazing expression. He says, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now look at this. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And so that's the outline of where we're headed. We're going to look at the introduction. We're going to look at the purpose of the letter. We're going to break all these things down. We're going to look at these seven Old Testament examples. We're going to look at the judgment that these false teachers experienced. We're going to, we're going to be strengthened by this call to persevere. And we're going to wrap up our study with looking at this amazing expression of praise, this doxology that Jude gives at the end of the letter. And that's the outline for this letter. Now, before we go today, I just want to give you five reasons why going through all of that matters. Why does it matter that we tackle this little letter? Why does it matter that we plow into these obscure Old Testament stories and we talk about false teaching and judgment, why does all of that matter to us today in June of 2017? Let me give you five reasons. Number one, because this letter was written for today. It was written for today. Why study Jude? Number one, it was written for today. Look at verse 18. They said to you, he says, remember the predictions in verse 17, remember the predictions of the apostles. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. He says, remember, in the last times, this is what's going to be happening. 
And so it was written for those who are living in the last times. This is not just a letter that was written a few thousand years ago, a couple thousand years ago, that takes us into stories that were even older than that. It has no direct relevant application for us today. It was written for those who are living in the last times. That is us. So the last times is everything that we would be considered the church age. Ever since the, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that everything since then has been has been what we would call the last times. And the farther we get into the last times, the later we are into the last times. Does that make sense? So when he, anything in the scripture talks about the last times, it's talking to us and for it's talking about the times that we live in. So Jude wrote this letter, yes, to encourage those in his present day, because that was also the church age, but we're now even later into that age, later into that those last days. And so this book has even more direct Application and relevance to us today, it's not only applicable, not only applies to us, it was written for us. And, and I'm going to tell you, as we read this and dive into this, you're going to see that we are currently, right now, in this culture and in the church, experiencing many of the things that Jude writes about. False teachers in the church, people falling away from the faith like tons of people falling away from the faith and abandoning the truth of the gospel and abandoning the truth of the scriptures. That's happening all around us. I, I know people all around me who this is happening to. So we're watching the things that Jude wrote all this time ago happening in front of our eyes right now. So it's incredibly relevant. It was written for today. Second reason to study Jude. It will take us into the Old Testament. Now, I've already said this, but let's, let's kind of flush out. Much of this letter actually depends on having a, a knowledge of Old Testament stories. Like Jude just assumes that we have a lot of knowledge of the Old Testament. He just flips off these stories like we know what he's talking about. Like, you know, like Korah's Rebellion, or, you know, like, like Cain, you know, and you're like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, just like that, right? Like, oh, just like Balaam. Oh, yeah, exactly like Balaam, Jude, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So it's like, it's, it's, it's going to force us to jump into some of these kind of more obscure corners of the Old Testament, and that's a good thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to strengthen our biblical knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament and why and how that's applicable to us still today. So our study of Jude is going to take us into these to be honest, some very interesting and dark, mysterious, lesser known, often neglected corners of the Old Testament. It's going to give us an education in some of those obscure parts of the Old Testament. That's cool. It's a cool reason to dive into this book. Third reason to study the letter of Jude. It deals with the subject of apostasy. Apostasy. Now I have that word in your notes just under the bold section in case you want to know how to spell it. And let me define apostasy, because that's not a word that we just slip around. Hey, you know, we don't just talk about apostasy all the time. Apostasy defined as just this, the abandonment or renunciation of a belief. People who believe one thing and then abandon that or renounce that belief, they fall away from the faith. It's interesting that Jude seems to be the only book in Scripture devoted entirely to the topic of apostasy. A falling away from the faith. It's going to talk about how it happened in the past with these Old Testament examples and how we can anticipate a great falling away, a great apostasy before the return of the Lord. 
This is, this is one of the things that's predicted as a sign of the return of Christ, is that there will be a great falling away from the faith before Christ returns. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's a great question. Jesus says, when I return, is there, are there going to be any who are still standing in faith? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of the return of Christ, the day of the end times, the day of judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first. The apostasy, the abandonment of the faith or the renunciation of belief. That must come first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And then that day will come. So, so before that great day of the Lord, an abandonment of the faith will happen. A great falling away, an apostasy will precede the return of Jesus Christ. And it says we shouldn't be shocked by this. Jude goes in and says we shouldn't be shocked by this. It's part of the deal. We've been foretold and warned of this. It shouldn't catch us by surprise. Now it grieves me. I look out and I see people whom I love with all of my heart and adore and watch to watch them fall away from the faith. To abandon the faith is gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching. But it's not shocking. It's not, it, did, it doesn't catch me by surprise. Because the scripture told us that that's going to happen. People who once professed and proclaimed faith. Now, now Paul would say elsewhere, he says, now I want to I wanna say something to you about those who have fallen away. He says, those who have fallen away... They fell away so it would be shown that they were never really of us. That's what he said. So some have professed a faith that they didn't really possess. You can profess a faith that you don't truly possess. Does that make sense? There's a difference between profession of faith and a possession of faith. Like I actually am in faith, going to follow Jesus to my last breath. And, oh, I'm just, yeah, professing Christianity until something else comes along or until life gets hard or until I'm disillusioned or until the societal pressure becomes too strong to keep following Jesus and then I'll abandon this for the popular thing. And so we shouldn't be caught off guard by the fact that there's a great falling away, there's a great apostasy. Jude just wants to remind us of this. He says, remember, this is what was predicted. Remember that? Look at verse 17. He says, guys, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, that is people who scoff at Christianity, who mock it, following their own ungodly passions. It is these people who cause divisions, division in the church, yep. Worldly people, devoid of the spirit. He says, that shouldn't shock you, that was predicted. Remember the predictions so Jude just wants to remind us of this and encourage us to stand strong in our faith even in the midst of a great falling away. Now here's what's interesting. Jude addresses the subject of apostasy and this falling away of faith, but he doesn't address those who are apostate. He addresses the topic of apostasy, but he addresses the church on the subject. He's not saying, hey, you who have fallen away, da 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 and, and, and give his whole letter to them. He says, no, no, you who are in the faith, there's a great falling away. We're going to talk about that. As you see these who have fallen away, it's like this. It's like that. You strengthen yourselves in your faith. 
Their judgment will be like this. Their character will be like this, but I want to strengthen you. So he doesn't waste his time or effort trying to convince someone who's determined to fall away. Now, that doesn't mean he don't preach the gospel, but he doesn't, he's, he's writing specifically to encourage the church. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Of course we preach the gospel, and of course we, we let the gospel do its work in the world and in the hearts and lives of people. But Jude's purpose is to strengthen and encourage the faith of the church. And so he's speaking to the church about the subject of apostasy. Does that make sense? Emphasize that. So Jude highlights and underscores the absolute importance of sound doctrine. What's doctrine? Because we say that word a lot uh, around here. What's doctrine? Okay. And I gave you a helpful definition there in your notes. Doctrine is just a belief or set of beliefs held or taught by a church, political party, or other group. So in the church, it's a belief or set of beliefs held by the church. When the scripture says, uh, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, it's not just saying your personal feelings of faith. It's saying the faith that was delivered to you, not the faith that you decide that you have, the, the faith that is the set of beliefs, the set of teachings, the set of doctrines that was delivered to you. Contend for that. That's what it's talking about. And so doctrine, if, if doctrine is teaching, just a set of beliefs or teachings, then doctrine matters. What we believe and teach about God matters. There's this crazy idea right now that, oh, doctrine doesn't matter. I'm just going to love people. We're going to talk about that in a second, but it's like, oh, man, that, it makes me mad to hear statements like that. Because of course we love people. Of course we love people. Look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. There's an apostasy, right? They've fallen away from the faith. But how did they fall away from the faith? Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So yes, some fall away from the faith in obvious ways, like, oh, I've become an atheist, or oh, I've become a Satanist. Okay, those are obvious. I was a Christian, now I'm an atheist. I was a Christian, now I'm a Satanist. That's obvious falling away. But this verse actually says that some fall away from the faith not by openly rejecting Jesus or no longer calling themselves Christians, but by paying attention to or giving heed to or giving themselves over to false doctrine. That is, they still call themselves Christians. They still say that they're following Jesus. They just say the way of Jesus is like this, or God is like that, or that no longer applies. They give themselves over to false teaching. That's what he said. The Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, the times we're living in, some will fall away from the faith. How? By paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That phrase is powerful. Doctrines of demons. That means that some doctrines are not just different interpretations. Well, that's your interpretation. That's my interpretation. Some doctrines are not just a matter of, oh, we have different interpretations. Some doctrines are actually demonically inspired and engineered deceptions to lead people away from the true God. You catch that? That some doctrines have actually been introduced by demons. Because Satan doesn't always show up with, a, uh, with horns in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork saying, I'm the devil. Scripture says he masquerades as an angel of light. 
So he says, no, this is the true way. This is the way of Jesus. How can we protect ourselves against false doctrine? Well, that's back to the last three weeks, what we've talked about. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine. So our doctrine must come out of and be rooted in the scriptures. And if what you're teaching does not jive with the scriptures, it is false teaching. So those who fall away from the faith in this way have given heed to deceiving spirits, not just different interpretations, but deceiving spirits and doctrines that have been introduced by demons. And so false teaching, false doctrine then, is an issue of spiritual warfare. It's a matter of spiritual war for the souls of people and for the faith of people. So many people don't fall away from the faith by just abandoning all faith, but by accepting a false faith. Does that make sense? They don't abandon the idea of Jesus. They accept a false Jesus. So it makes me a little crazy to see so many people on the sidelines in this spiritual battle, pretending like doctrine doesn't matter, and actually saying it's so, it's become so popular for many Christians and even many pastors to say things like, well, I'm not really called to be a theologian. I, I, I'm not really called to focus on doctrine. I'm just called to love people. That's bogus. Of course we're called to love people. Of course. But first of all, everyone is a theologian. What is theology? It's the study of God. It's beliefs about God. What is doctrine? It's beliefs about God. Right? So everyone has beliefs about God. Whether you think you are or not, you're a theologian. You have a theology. You have a, a worldview, a vision of God, an idea about God. And that's either, it's a, that's either a true belief about God that's rooted in the scriptures, or it's a false belief about God that you've adapted from culture or somewhere else. But we're all theologians. So theology matters for all of us. Second, the belief that doctrine doesn't matter, only love matters, is a doctrine. Did you catch that? When you say... Well, doctrine doesn't matter, just love people. You're teaching a doctrine. You're saying, you're teaching a doctrine that says love and truth are separate things, and if you have to choose between them, just, just love people and forget about doctrine or place doctrine on a lower rung. When the scripture actually teaches, it's a false doctrine because scripture actually teaches that love and truth go hand in hand. Love and sound doctrine go hand in hand. Ephesians it says, speaking the truth in love. It says, don't be bashed about by every wind and wave of doctrine, but speak the truth in love. Truth and love, doctrine and love go hand in hand. So when you say, I'm not called to be a theologian or doctrine, you know, I'm, I'm not really called to focus on doctrine. I'm just called to love on people. You're teaching a false doctrine. Third, you can't even begin to describe God or define love without getting into doctrine. If you say, I'm not really called to focus on doctrine, I'm just called to love God and love people, then I go, cool, which God? What is God like? And how do you love him? You cannot even begin to answer that question without getting into theology and doctrine and beliefs about God and what love is. And how. If I say, oh, cool, you're just called to love people, what is love? You can't begin to answer that question without getting into doctrine because the scriptures tell us what love is. So as soon as you're saying those things like doctrine doesn't matter, it makes me nuts because 
False doctrine can lead people to destruction. That's what it's saying. And so when we act like we love people but we don't care about doctrine, if you don't care about doctrine, are, do you truly care about the souls of people? Or your own? We have, we're all theologians. We better care about doctrine. Doctrine matters. Pastors better care about doctrine. In fact, holding sound doctrine is one of the qualifications to even become an elder or pastor or overseer in the church. So I go crazy when I hear pastors say, I'm not really called to focus on doctrine. I'm just called to love people. I'm like, no, if you're called to be a pastor, you are called to focus on doctrine. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 9. This is a qualification for an elder overseer in the church. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's a qualification just to become, that's one of the qualifications just to become an elder in the church is to hold sound doctrine, to encourage people in sound doctrine, and to refute those who oppose sound doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writing to Timothy, a pastor in the church, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. He says there are going to be false teachers among you. That is, not everyone with a Bible in their hand is preaching truth. I wish you would even do this today. In the top corner of your notes, write Acts 17, 11. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. And I may just have you do this every single week as we come together. Because basically what Acts 17, verse 11 tells you is to not take anything anyone says, including Jason Mayo, as truth without going to the scriptures to search diligently for yourself whether these things are true. Acts 17.11 talks about a people in a place called Berea. And it says Paul came to them and he spoke the gospel and it says they received his message gladly and then diligently searched the scriptures to see if those things were true. I've taught things that I later disagree with. That I go, ugh. We have a personal responsibility to be in the scriptures so that we are not just led astray. So it says that among you, and this is, they'll bring in what? Destructive heresies. False teaching is destructive. And I would say, if you're going to lead people, if you're going to pastor people, and you don't care about things that can destroy them, like doctrine, is that really love? Doctrine matters. I know I've really spent a lot of time on this, but this is a core issue for me. And Jude, this letter of Jude, highlights the importance of sound doctrine. That's the whole purpose for him writing, is people have infiltrated the church. They've crept in among you, and they're teaching things that, have, that are leading you to destruction. And so come back. Contend for the faith against these false teachings, and build up your own faith. 
His whole purpose in writing. So Jude highlights the importance of sound doctrine. He encourages us to contend for the faith that is the body of truth, once for all delivered to the saints, and to be on guard against false teaching. Fifth and final reason we should study this letter of Jude. It presents a breathtaking picture of God. It presents a breathtaking picture of God. A.W. Tozer said this, in some circles, God has been abridged, reduced, modified, edited, changed, and amended until he's no longer the God whom Isaiah saw high and lifted up. God is not whoever you think he is. God is who he says he is. Does that make sense? God is not whatever your cute little idea of God is, and that just feels good to me. So God is who, has, who he has revealed himself to be. And God has revealed who he is to us in and through the pages of Scripture. And Jude, the book of Jude, is going to help reorient us around that. Okay? Because this letter, this tiny letter, presents a stunning portrait of a God who is an absolutely sovereign, righteous judge. We don't like that part of God. But he just presents this, he elevates our view of God. God is sovereign, and he's absolutely holy and absolutely righteous, and he will judge the world in righteousness, it says. It presents a picture of God as one who saves and preserves his saints. God is the one who calls and loves and keeps those who are his children. It presents a picture of a God of mercy and peace and love and glory and majesty and dominion and authority for all eternity. This is the God of the Bible. This is the only true God. Or as verse 25 would say, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And so in a breathtaking way, Jude magnifies the glory of God. So as we dive into this short but powerful book, let's pray that God will keep us rooted in sound doctrine and strengthen us to endure and contend for the faith against the false teachings and the falling away of our present generation. Let's pray that God will open our eyes to see him for he truly is. To see him in all of his glory and stir our hearts to worship. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for this letter. We thank you for moving and, and stirring and, um, and breathing out this letter so that we would have instruction today for here and now in June of 2017, this directly relevant book. So God, I pray that we would heed its words, that we would give ourselves over to its study and to worship and to its application in our lives. Father, I pray that you would transform us in the process. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.